You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Today on the show, I am joined by David Fuller. David is a journalist and filmmaker who previously worked for Channel 4 as a news reporter. David's documentaries and news work into a variety of topics, including Syrian refugees and psychedelics, have previously been nominated for several TV awards. In more contemporary media, you may recognize David as the host of the very popular Rebel Wisdom channel, which has more than 200,000 YouTube subscribers. David, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Hey, good to be here. Amazing, man. So what's going on with Brian Rose lately? What's going on with Brian Rose? Oh, um, Brian Rose is the grift that keeps on giving. <laughs> so he, so he's the host of the London Real channel and has been running for London Mayor recently. I don't know. Do you think many of you viewers will be will be aware of Brian Rose already? Oh, or for not? sure, for sure. Yeah, definitely. For sure, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I. I'd always sort of been aware of the London Real platform, the London Real show, and kind of had a sort of ambivalent relationship to it. It seemed very corporate and very, um, yeah, it seemed very corporate, very glossy. And But at the same time, they did some really interesting interviews. And then last year, when after Brian had David Icon, he then ran this digital freedom platform, free speech thing which I think now you can safely say was a scam. Like he just kept, he ended up, he claimed to have raised a million dollars from it for a supposed free speech platform that he said was independent of London Real. Turns out it was completely owned by him. It was a plugin in the London Real website. Like, so I, I did a few films about that at the time. And then recently he has decided to run for London mayor and has a similarly tangential relationship with the truth so but he is one of the most i think someone on on our in one of the interviews said he's probably got the least self-awareness of any man they've ever seen and so he is he is objectively hilarious but it's also for me, the thing that I've become very exercised about during the London mayor campaign is just how poor the quality of journalism has been covering him. So I, I did a few films about him last year. I sort of wasn't that interested in returning to the subject. But then the Times did a profile and the Evening Standard did a profile that had none of the context whatsoever. It was just sort of saying, ah, look at this funny man running for London mayor. It's like they hadn't done a basic cutting search or even, even Googled him there's a, a vice article about the youtuber accused of scamming his followers mm. over coronavirus there's all of these reviews of his courses there's all of these there's facebook groups of unhappy customers there's reddit threads there's all of this stuff that you can find and all of the videos that i've put out and coffeezilla has put out and a few other people have put out and so yeah the thing that was really pissing me off was just how bad a job 
the mainstream media was doing and covering Brian Rose. So I was like, okay, I'm going to get back into it. Um, and I did a few, I did a piece for Unheard and then another couple of interviews on Rebel Wisdom. I was, before I asked you that question, I was uh, trying to get an update about how his uh, London mayor campaign is going. So a recent poll has Brian Rose holding 2% of the, of the vote. Uh, Nico Omelana, a 23-year-old YouTube prankster who is running his campaign under the guise NDL or the Nico Defence League is currently holding 5% of the vote. So I take it his campaign is not going too well. <laughs> no. He's got, as you say, he's got about 2%, which to be fair is more than Lawrence Fox is yeah. <laughs> um, polling at the moment. But that's part of his scam is that he keeps claiming that he's in second place because he's bet on himself heavily in the bookies. Therefore, he's changed the odds. Therefore, con like he's putting up films saying, I'm the second place candidate. Why is the BBC not inviting me on? Which is ludicrous because Sadiq Khan has got, what, 40 odd percent of the vote. Then, then there's um, Sean Bailey. Then there's the Lib Dem candidate. Then there's like two other candidates, three other candidates before Brian Rose. But he, he just cannot stop lying. That's the most amazing thing about him. I mean, he's following the kind of Trump playbook, I guess. But the irony is he seems less likable than Trump. Is this all a kind of marketing play for London Real? Like in terms of obviously he's got... Brian Rose plastered on billboards and on buses is because I, I think that I saw these actually stop doing interviews. I don't think he's done an interview in about four months. Is this just going to bring back all people to his accelerator programs and whatnot? Your guess is as good as mine. I mean, Brian Rose is one of the most narcissistic people the world has ever seen. That's why it's such a fascinating character study. And I partly wonder I mean, there's a few different reasons for the mayoral bid, one of which is that his, his YouTube audience turned against him in quite a major way after the digital freedom platform. So he, he basically rinsed them for a million dollars, mm. refused to answer questions, went on, so started banning people from banning and deleting comments like constantly on his channel, like there was a major revolution. Um, he went on this kind of rampage calling out, arguing with his own audience at one point. That was absolutely hilarious, saying, you didn't, let me guess, you didn't donate. Winners concentrate on winning. <laughs> losers concentrate on, on, on winners. Like calling his own audience a bunch of losers because they wondered what happened to their money. <laughs> so he basically had to pivot to something beyond the London Real channel because YouTube was onto him. But I don't know where he goes from here. I mean, obviously, he's probably going to get a few more people signing up to his courses off the back of the publicity that he's got from the London Mayor run. But all of the credibility that he had. So some of his former guests like Dorian Yates have started to call him out and they've refused to come back on. They've pulled out of interviews saying, I wanted to ask Brian about the digital freedom platform, about why so many people think his courses are a scam. He refused to have that conversation. So I'm not comfortable going on the show. Like Dorian Yates is supposed to be one of his guests of honor at this big live event that he's doing at the end of this year or next year. And obviously that's not going to happen. So he's, I, I don't know. I mean, I look at it from, 
so someone like Coffeezilla, who I've done a couple of interviews with, and he's covered Brian and a lot of these other sort of online um, sort of dubious business gurus and um, online kind of get rich quick schemes, and basically says that he's always surprised at how often people can reinvent themselves when you think that they've kind of got no future. But I really do wonder, I don't know where he goes. And I, there's something almost compulsive about him wanting to be the center of attention and wanting to have his name up on a billboard. And like that, that sort of personality constellation is very, like it's, it, it's a hard, narcissism is a, is a hard taskmaster. And so I don't know if there is a plan. Maybe there is, but I, I don't quite understand what it is. And I think he's going to have to keep pivoting and pivoting and pivoting, but I don't know where he's necessarily going to go next. Some people have speculated that when he gets 2%, he's going to claim, he's going to do what Trump did and claim that the whole thing was rigged and that the, yeah, that there was a scam and he was on the, he was on the wrong end of it. And that could be something he continues. I don't know. It was interesting yeah. for me from a media point of view because uh, before we started this podcast in 2018, I looked at Brian and I saw him as kind of um, as kind of a, a bit of a renaissance man in the space. I viewed him as this new age alternative media guy, very open minded, would speak to people from the left. He'd speak to people to the right, Taoist monks, to politicians. Um, but then, as, as time got on, it, it seemed like it was more then for him about accelerator courses, obviously, the, the whole Ike scandal. And this is my big issue with him. This is my gripe with him, in that in the birth of alternative media, that he will cast distrust amongst channels like yours, like mine, that are trying to do good work, good journalism. That's my worry. Is, is that a problem, that, that he could stain the, the the push for alternative media that was what i was most unhappy about with what happened last year at the beginning of the corona pandemic that because freedom of speech is such a huge thing and mm. any of us that are wanting to have real conversations about controversial topics or difficult topics care a lot about that like we don't trust the big tech platforms we don't trust um the mainstream or legacy media to be able to treat these things well. So it, it's a hugely important thing. And it was, it was entirely cynical and entirely dishonest, his kind of claim of free speech and then to manipulate a load of people into giving him money for this sort of, and he pitched it as an independent platform to have controversial conversations. And it wasn't like, it was, a, a daily motion plugin within the London Real website, fully owned by Longstem Limited, that is his company, sole shareholder Brian Rose, that owns London Real. Like, it was not what it said in the tin in any way whatsoever. And also, the cynicism of he knew what David Icke was going to say when David Icke came on London Real. Like, I, a lot, quite a few of his staff objected massively they said it was irresponsible they said it was not okay because David Icke basically said corona is a hope is a hoax um it's a fascist takeover and humanity needs to get off its knees and do what it and 
otherwise, and he basically said it was caused by 5G at the time when 5G masks were being burned down, when engineers were being threatened, YouTube were inevitably going to have to take that interview down because it was putting people's lives at risk. Like, you've got to have, I mean, there's so many big questions that come up with this. And it's like, what are our responsibilities and what are our um, moral obligations as, as media pr producers? And Brian Rose deliberately tried to create that, uh, tried to position himself as a free speech martyr, and then was abusing that term of, of freedom of speech that so many people are passionate about to line his own pockets in a completely cynical way. And then the free speech martyr then was just deleting anyone's comments, asking what was going on, um, banning people from his YouTube channel, refusing to answer questions. Like it was so, it was, it was disgusting. The whole thing was disgusting about a topic that I think so many of us find really sacred. I'd go as far as to say it's that it's it, the values that he's exploiting and manipulating are sacred values. I imagine today we're going to be spending a lot of time discussing legacy alternative media, kind of like uh, like London Real, kind of like um, Rebel Wisdom. So I think that a major moment in recent year, years, obviously very prevalent, your story was the Kathy Newman Jordan Peterson conversation. Um, you made a superb documentary in the aftermath of that conversation, A Glitch in the Matrix. I'll check a link below if anyone hasn't seen it. Um, I know Peterson put that up on his channel. That has been viewed millions of times by now. And for me, looking back, I see that as kind of a pivotal moment uh, culturally. Now, I know, obviously, as I said at the start, that you were involved at Channel 4. Now you are kind of in this new age media, alternative media. How do you look back on that Newman-Peterson interview and analyze what it meant culturally? Hmm. I mean, I would stick by what I put into that documentary, which was to break it down on so many different levels, because it, it was a seminal moment for so many different reasons, one of which was a clash between the alternative and the mainstream media, like the short attention span of the... And like you, I, I, know, I noticed before, you said legacy media. I prefer saying legacy media rather than mainstream media. I think main, when people talk about mainstream media, it often becomes a kind of very low resolution conspiracy theory. Hmm. It doesn't really make much sense to kind of like mainstream media. What are you including everything from Fox to NPR or to the New York Times? Like it's a, it obscures more than it um, reveals. But legacy media, I think, works quite well to differentiate it from alternative media. Um, so that was one of the, it, it was sort of someone who'd come from podcasts and from long form, like Jordan Peterson, trying to be caught out in a sort of, Kathy Newman was, even though that was half an hour long, she was thinking about a four minute cut down for the, well, the, the news program. So she wasn't thinking people are going to watch this whole thing and think about whether I'm interacting with him like a human being or not, which he wasn't. It was more about can I catch him out, and then that's the kind of gotcha that we'll put on the we'll put on the show. Um, then you had the, the the kind of clash between the gender the gender clash, which is a sort of very simplistic understanding of gender politics that Kathy Newman was coming from, versus a much more um, 
nuanced perspective that Jordan Peterson was coming from. Um, and then you had all of these other layers within it as well of the kind of archetypal layer of what's going on um, in terms of this sort of low resolution grand narrative, which is what I've, I've called it, that was challenged by Trump and challenged by Brexit, this sort of very low resolution, pseudo liberal way of looking at the world that created this incredible reaction. And I think Jordan Peterson was part of that, but a more sophisticated version of that reaction to the, the status quo, which I tried to pull apart in the documentary and say, okay, what is going on? What is being left out of the, um, the, the mainstream legacy view of the world that is fueling the reaction against it? And largely that's a kind of superiority by a lot of journalists, by a lot of people in, in the sort of liberal mainstream who have got this sort of pseudo inclusiveness, like we're so open to everyone, no matter what race, sex, or way that they describe themselves, but we actually really don't like anyone who doesn't agree with us. And we, we especially don't like, um, and we judge and we secretly judge anyone who doesn't have the same views as us. There's a kind of hidden tribalism pretending that it's not a tribalism. And that's ultimately what I think has created that massive rejection quite rightly because it's a kind of superiority complex that has just blown up in their faces. Yeah, there's a lot in there which I'd love to, to delve into. I remember watching back the interview and Kathy Newman when she kept saying, so what you're saying is, and then Peterson would be like, no, that, that's not what I'm saying. And for me, that kind of felt like a moment where I was like, this, this isn't what I want. You know, as you said, I don't want this short attention span, um, gotcha type journalism. So was that a tipping point moment? Um, yes, I think it was a tipping point. And I think, I think generally the, the treatment of Jordan Peterson, especially by the legacy media has been a real tipping point. I mean, people talk about kind of red pill or red pill moments. And there's, I mean, obviously there must be something to that because it's got such attraction in the culture. Um, I think a lot of, um, and I think a, that process has definitely happened with a lot of people who have seen how Jordan Peterson is described by a lot of the kind of um, legacy media papers and news organizations and then actually read his work or watched some of his lectures and thought these are not this is not the same person I don't understand how they how they're saying this about this person um, which isn't to say there are no valid criticisms of Jordan Peterson but but a lot of the criticisms that are being put forward in the legacy media are almost like they're looking at someone through kind of funhouse mirrors almost. It's not, it's not, they're not reflecting who he is. And that's certainly, it's made a lot of people realize that journalism itself is not, journalism pretended to be neutral and it's clearly obviously not neutral. Sure. Um, but also I think it's laid bare a lot of the biases and a lot of the, the generally quite shoddy work of a lot of the journalists in the, in the legacy media. I remember watching the interview and it was kind of like a game of chess. Like Kathy Newman would think that she had Peterson in a checkmate. She would say, oh, the, there's a gender pay gap issue at the BBC. And then Peterson would say, well, you can't generalize 
a gender pay gap issue at the BBC to an entire population. There are reasons for it. And I remember mm-hmm. it, and I just remember thinking this was a, it was just a complete takedown. It was like, as you said, there were so many different layers to that conversation. Um, I'm just thinking because I know that you were at Channel 4. Um, what was the kind of reaction like there at the time to that whole incident? In the building, only a few weeks before that happened, and I was in touch with with Kathy a little bit. I was in touch with Jordan, um, but then I put out the the glitch in the Matrix documentary about that interview, and I knew it would make it. It was sort of it would make things very difficult to go back into Channel Four News again because I did criticize Channel Four in it a little bit. I said, um, I said that. It was an ongoing car crash with Channel 4's reputation, a couple of other things. And at that moment, that ended my that ended my career with Channel 4 News and also meant I, it, at some point a bit later on, we had someone come to one of our events from ITN who make Channel 4 News and he said, oh, I told people I was coming to this. And they said, oh, yeah, that's the guy who's been banned from ITN. So I kind of knew it would make things difficult. I didn't necessarily know that it meant that I would be banned. Um, but so I d- the, the answer is I don't really know. I mean, I know that they didn't expect, I know that they regretted putting up the whole interview, the whole 30 minutes, because they didn't quite realize at the time what it would look like. Kathy didn't, I don't think, thought it had gone particularly badly. Um, but I know that they, yeah, I think they would have taken it down if they if they could have done afterwards, but they obviously couldn't. And you mentioned earlier that that ITN kind of um, they they obviously banned you from that event. I mean, why do you think that that had that? Band, in- I mean, yeah. I heard that secondhand. The yeah. thing that I know happened is I was never asked to. Um, I no, never had any offer of any freelance work there ever again. Um, and I would have done if they hadn't made a decision not to, not to, or if they hadn't made a decision not to uh, offer me any. Uh, and I'm what, like, I'm just trying to think, like, like why did did that happen? I, I mean, because obviously, I mean, I I watched the documentary. I didn't think it was that disparaging for for Channel Four. In fact, I actually thought that it would have made if you'd done a follow up in the aftermath, which I imagine I'm sure you you probably consider. I thought that would have been a sensational piece um was that something which was ever pitched to to the the news agencies at all no i mean i made it that documentary on my own and put it out and it has probably done better than just about anything i've done mm. for quite a long time i mean it it's up to five million views on jordan peterson's channel it's the third most popular thing that he's uploaded on there um and I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with it. I think it stands the test of time. I think, I think we're in a different place now than we were then at the beginning of 2018. Um, and, but I think it, I think it works. I think he was sort of the cutting edge of a, he, as, as a friend of mine said, he broke a conversational seal. There were some things that were not really able to be said until Jordan Peterson said them. And then suddenly he, articulated things for a lot of people who were trying to articulate it or perceiving that something was going on 
but weren't really able to understand how to articulate it themselves. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I think that made a, that, that was a huge cultural moment. And then he became this kind of one man lightning rod for the culture war, um, which I think we're still trying to fully understand what that actually meant. Why have people lost trust in legacy media? Um, for largely the same reasons that I think they've lost trust in a lot of institutions. I think the institutions are increasingly unfit for purpose. And there's, a, there's many, many different reasons for legacy media. One of the big ones I think is a, is a growing sense that many of them are increasingly ideological. Um, there's, there's lots of reasons for that, one of which is the financial incentives towards um, effectively because of the because of the um, the media landscape is increasingly difficult like advertising been, has been gobbled up by Google and by Facebook and all of the media are doing much worse financially or most of them are and what that's generally meant is that they're increasingly chasing their tails and giving their audience what they want. There's no real financial incentive anymore to challenge your audience or to try and cover the whole landscape of thought. You generally, if you're a right-wing organization, you will just focus increasingly more on right-wing narratives. If you're a left-wing organization, you'll increasingly focus on left-wing narratives because that's what your audience wants. And people, social media, has accelerated that process of balkanization, of speeding up just giving people what they already believe and more of it, sort of outrage porn. So there's a few, there's a few of these larger reasons. There's also the fact that a lot of the most experienced journalists are increasingly going it alone. You've got things like Substack, where a lot of um, the, yeah, a lot of the, the more experienced journalists are now setting themselves up as solo operators. So that you're losing that from the newsroom. And then especially in the States, you're having uh, journalists are increasingly seeing themselves as activists for a certain worldview. I mean, social justice, activism, which was accelerated by Trump, but it seems likely that that's not going to change. It seems to, it doesn't seem to be sort of um, changing much after Trump was was um, defeated in, in the election. But effectively, I mean, I did a series of, of pieces last year over the summer when there was there were a series of revolts in a lot of in a lot of journalists, sorry, in a lot of newsrooms in America. There were some high profile ones at the New York Times, um, with when they ran a, an op-ed by Tom Cotton, their opinion editor was forced to resign. Uh, Barry Weiss, who Barry was sort Weiss, of yeah. Yeah, sort of heterodox voice uh, in the in the newsroom was forced to resign, and a lot of very similar things happened across journalism. That if you did, if you diverted from a very narrow conception of social justice, that you were basically attacked. Your life was made incredibly difficult, and often you had to leave the paper. The left love diversity, but not diversity of thought, as the saying goes. <laughs> yeah, I, I I would love to ask um, what will be the challenges for the new and alternative media like Rebel Wisdom? What, what will be the challenges for them in the coming years? Um, I mean, I think the biggest 
question is how to how to how to handle alternative narratives or heterodox narratives in a conscientious and informative way because what i see happening is you've got the mainstream or legacy media which has got an increasingly narrow focus around an increasingly sort of ideological focus and then you have these alternative narratives whether that's questioning lockdown or questioning vaccines or questioning um like all of these sort of narratives that are outside the mainstream but i and there's a a big incentive landscape for those to thrive as in if you put someone on your channel you get a load of views with these people conspiracy theories being another one mm. like i don't see anyone critically interrogating those alternative perspectives like it just feels like you've got a completely fragmented information ecosystem where the mainstream is is not being challenged and is settling into a, a kind of an increasingly defunct consensus and then the alternatives are not being challenged in any meaningful way and you've just got this complete fragmentation that's what i think is the most is is the most important question for any of us in the alternative to wrestle with is how do we how do we in, how do we deal with how do we platform how do we interrogate alternative narratives in a conscientious way not just to sort of say oh well the mainstream is not reflecting this so i'll have this person on my my platform ask them no critical questions whatsoever which is what i see far too many people doing um i did a, an interview with the, the guys on trigonometry recently which i direct people towards where i asked them this question about uh, a a person they had on who had a particular view about the the, the vaccine and he said something like i wouldn't take the vaccine i'm not mad and they used that clip to promote the, the film and i said do you feel a sense of responsibility to have someone on who's got the alternative perspective and it was a really interesting conversation it sort of went back and forth and in the end they said yeah actually i think you're right i think we do so they're kind of wrestling with that in a conscientious way which is all anyone can do but i i worry i worry that things are broken because you need a marketplace of ideas so the marketplace of ideas means that you need but then you need to decide what are outside the bounds of acceptability of those ideas and if you think that nothing is then surely those ideas at least have to be challenged and have to be there has to the marketplace of ideas only works if those ideas are challenged and in competition with each other and i don't see that happening i think that that system's broken down in a really fundamental way. There is a really interesting point here. And um, I was thinking, as you were saying that, about um, Darren Grimes. I don't know if you saw what happened to him. Obviously, he had a conversation with Dr. David Starkey. David Starkey made a racist comment or something like that on his platform. Um, and then they met police arrest Darren Grimes for something, obviously, which he didn't say, but because he didn't challenge him or he still published it then. Um, then, you know, they, they said that he was liable for publishing hate speech. Darren Grimes said, oh, well, I, I didn't have the skills to challenge David Starkey. And the other issue, which I think I, I, would, I would comment is on our platform, we've had people from really ac across the platform 
our most viewed videos are, are Douglas Murray. Um, so obviously, so when we reach out to someone like a Kathy Newman, like we did last week, and she says, no, she looks at our channel and she sees a Douglas Murray and she thinks, oh, well, why would I go on a channel which posts, poses Douglas Murray? So I think that that's the, cha- that the issue which we face is guests will see a guest from one side of the political spectrum and think, well, that's not my tribe. And then it's kind of difficult to get them on, if that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's something that the trigonometry guys also talk about, that they really want to have people from across the political spectrum. And it's more on the left that they will look at people that you've had on from the right and say, no, I'm not going on that. There's a kind of guilt by association thing going on. Um, and that's a, that's a real problem. That's a real problem that certainly seems to be much bigger on the left than it is on the right. Mm. I, do, I do think sometimes people use that as a defense. Like people pretend, like for a long time, someone like Dave Rubin was using that as a defense. And it wasn't altogether true. Like if you really look at what, like a lot of people are very critical of Dave Rubin, and I think rightly so. I did an interview with him where I pushed him quite hard on this. It's not so much that he, like, it is true that there's a guilt by association thing and it, you, you get into more trouble from the left for putting people from the right on than you do from people on the right putting people on the left on. But it's also true, like, for example, with Dave Rubin, the, the thing that upset people is more the way that he would frame his guests. He'd have on someone like Stefan Molyneux, who's a kind of race realist, pretty, pretty sinister type if you look at a lot of the stuff that he's up to with his kind of borderline culty radio radio show program where he asks where he basically tells people to cut them to cut off their family of origin if they're having any problems with them like he's a fairly sinister guy and Rubin will sort of frame him as an ally in the in the battle against the woke left we'll have on people like Tommy Robinson and people from the sort of quite extreme right and frame them in a certain way as allies like, it's not just that you talk to people, it's how you talk to people. And this is, a, this is a thing that I think not enough is talked about. It's like, that we, we've gone from a kind of legacy media that for all of its faults, at least had some kind of journalistic principles or journalistic habits or skills that have been built up over 100, 200 years. And I know from having worked with the newsrooms, People take that very, very seriously. Like if, you, if you're saying anything about someone, you'll get their right of reply before you put it out. Like there are, there are rules to what you can say and what you can't say for good reason. Um, and I feel like we've moved away from that towards the alternative and we've lost any of those checks and balances or um, even kind of healthy principles of operation. And I think that's a real worry that, yeah, we're in the worst of all possible worlds, I think, at the moment. Yes. It sounds like we need to get the intersection of the pillars, the healthy principles of legacy journalism, and then combine them with the nuanced, long-form conversations of the alternative media somewhere in the middle. Is that a fair summation? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Like, because challenge... Like challenging your guests on a podcast, I think is necessary because you have to challenge sometimes to get at the truth. 
and often you'll get a better interview if you do because it forces people to to really focus their mind focus their answers and that's something i think that we need to do and it helps as well because the the viewers thinking that often why doesn't they ask him about that why doesn't he challenge him about that so you you're in the position of the viewer a lot of the time but the problem is that has become quite performative and again that's very much what the Kathy Newman interview showed is that especially british journalism had exchanged a kind of performative contradictory interviewing style for actually trying to get at the truth like Kathy Newman wasn't really trying to get at the truth he was trying to catch him out trying to get a gotcha moment but you see a lot of people very critical of that style of journalism quite rightly but then you can also go too far the other way where you're not putting important questions to people that need to be asked and i think that's doing a real disservice to doing a disservice to truth and to the audience yeah it's interesting because that's one of the criticisms which we get on this channel is the issue about challenging and you know i've kind of i I, i'm veering towards your position on this but i mean for instance i did the douglas marie um interview we've had ruben on the show twice he's come on the show twice and and I have to say that there's there's a bit, also a bit of kind of fear in it. I remember sitting opposite with Douglas, and I was thinking, you know, I mean, this is a guy that's been in the media platforms for a long time. I've seen him go on platforms like the BBC and snipe away at people that have come at him. And I remember thinking, I don't really want to be in this guy's firing line, <laughs> you know. And it's the same with my my host interviewed Ruben twice. I remember him saying he's like, you know, I. I, I don't want to get kind of taken apart by Dave Rubin. You know, it's like, I, I don't want to be cat turned into a Kathy Newman type of meme. How can we get over that fear of challenging a guest? It's one thing I say is that it, it is difficult because when, like, if you're working for the New York Times, if you're working for the BBC, that goes with the territory and you've got a weight of platform behind you that means that people are going to say yes to the interview most likely you're not in a whereas if you're a startup podcast or you've got less clout then if you get yourself a reputation as being contradictory or as being challenging then often people will start to say no to your interviews i mean that is a possibility um i did a challenging interview with ruben and he got very upset about it and started off asking me not to put the interview out and then ended up uh, blocking me on Twitter. And I know that that caused some disruption. I know that that caused some issues with behind the scenes, but I felt like I had to do it because I'd kind of seen, I was very uncomfortable with what he was doing and how he was acting. Um, it's difficult with Ruben because I think he is particularly thin skinned. Um, someone like Douglas Murray I think could handle it. I think Douglas is used to it. And I think he, he's, he's from a British media landscape, which is much more rough and tumble than the American media landscape. Um, Americans seem way more sensitive um, than, than Brits do. I think especially if you're a working British journalist like Douglas Murray, he's used to that. He kind of knows what, what's what. Um, and I think asking it in a respectful way would be fine. But I, I think I think Douglas can take it. 
I'll remember that for the next time we get uh, Mr. Murray on. I would I would love to sort of wind this interview now. Now I see we've got about nine minutes left. So I'd love to ask, obviously you've built up a big, big truth-seeking audience at Rebel Wisdom. How have you managed to build that community up? Um, I guess by, by putting out films that people want to watch, by putting on events that people have enjoyed coming to, um, and I think probably by having a sort of coherent narrative to what, what we're doing, um, I would say. Yeah, um, I mean, we, I've, I've kind of, I've tried to look at what are, the, what are the things that are going on in the culture, for example, Jordan Peterson, the phenomenon of Jordan Peterson at the beginning, like what does that phenomenon mean and what is it saying about the deeper shifts that we're seeing in culture or we're seeing in society and to try and bring that lens to it all the time. Um, yeah, that's what, I, that's what I've tried to do, but yeah, it seems to have, and also I guess the, the production value and the, the journalistic skills and the experience that I have from, um, yeah, from, from being, working in the media for like 20 years has helped and it gives you a bit of a head start as well dream guest dream guest um i've been keen to get jonathan height on for a while mm. i think jonathan height is a hugely important figure in like he yeah, he, he's studying and asking the most important questions, I think, about polarization, about the way that we um, are dividing into armed camps. So he's someone definitely that I'd, that I'd love to get on. Um, yeah, I think Jonathan Haidt. He's, he's amazing. Jonathan is amazing. Although, although getting Brian Rose on would be a really interesting <laughs> Yeah. Conversation. <laughs> I'll wait to, wait around this off, man. Um, where do you see the psychedelic space heading? It's a good question. Um, my colleague Alexander um, is is more focused on that. He, uh, so co-founder of Rebel Wisdom, he did. He's one of the directors of uh, Breaking Convention, which is the largest psychedelic science festival in Europe. Um, I mean, it's at a very interesting place. We put out a series of films recently about psychedelic capitalism. And, the, and there are serious concerns among a lot of people within sort of psychedelic communities that these big corporate forces are now trying to copyright and own the psychedelic space. And they're very concerned about that. And I think there's some, there's certainly some truth to, to a lot of people who are going for legalization were talking about the, or were looking at the medical route as the best route to do that. And I think there's now a few people who are kind of maybe wondering whether that was the best route to have gone down because it seems that these big corporate entities are now trying to own the medical route. And mm. some of them in a very aggressive way, sort of patenting, patenting molecules, trying to copyright and protect 
psychedelic therapy as a concept, which means that no one else will be able to do it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's, that's pretty worrying. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, watch this space. We're basically trying to cover it and to trying to, 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 to follow the development of the story as much as we can. Watch this space. My last question for you before I ask you to sign off and tell these guys where they can connect with you is a question we sign off all our podcasts with. What makes a life worth living? What makes a life worth living? Hmm. Come back to Jordan Peterson, I guess. Meaning. Meaning, responsibility as well, for sure. Um, I think the, who said the unexamined life is not worth living? Socrates, I think. Sorry? Socrates, perhaps. Maybe. Socrates. He also said, know thyself. And that, I think, yeah, I'd say that the unexamined life is not worth living. Curiosity, growth, and yeah, I, I think my life has been changed by a lot of the practices that I've done, a lot of the group work practices in particular, sort of transformational work, breath work, um, things like inquiry. Um, yeah, and, and I think some of that honest conversations and, and, and really kind of being dedicated to try and get to the truth of who you are. I think that's the, that's the key.